We are in Hosea 13. I forgot to print out my sermon, so I have to use my, my laptop tonight. Hosea 13. Last week we got up to verse 14. And I talked about how the Lord said here through Hosea, He said, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them. So we talked about the meaning of, re, of a ransom and the meaning of redeeming. Now, what is the definition for redeem or redemption? To buy back. Yep, to buy back. What's a real good um, biblical illustration of redemption? Like an Old Testament, an Old Testament biblical illustration of redemption. I'm trying to make it more like a group Bible study tonight. So, the, uh, you think of, well, what the Lord is talking about here, he said, I will ransom them from the power of the grave, I will redeem them from death. Adam lost, Adam lost the Garden of Eden and the world to Satan. Yeah. And Christ added to those Yeah, yeah. So he, because Christ created it, and then he lost it to sin and the devil, and then bought it back. Yeah. His mind, if you use his mind, is 100%. There's no death, nothing going on. And he gave the title mm-hmm. to all the world and regarded it as just Satan and sin. Mm-hmm. So then Christ, Christ had to go to the cross and redeem it all back. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, that's, a, that's a great, that's a first example, really. And um, another one, well, Job, which was written previous to Genesis, but Job says, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And we'll stand upon the earth, and I'll stand upon the earth with him one day. Job said that. What, uh, after that, in the history of Israel, would you think of when you think of redemption? And that you should think of the Exodus, when they came out of Israel. That was the Lord uh, redeeming his people. And um, that's, a, that's an example of redemption. Another one would be... Um, huh? When they went to Egypt. Yeah, he brought them out, and they were in slavery to sin. He brought them out in freedom, set them free. So redemption carries with it the idea of being set free, being purchased by the Lord. And the Lord purchased them, and it was, it's tip, it was like you can see it through type. So through the Passover lamb, the shedding of the Passover lamb, and he eventually would be their Passover lamb and would fulfill that type and purchase his people with his own blood. So it's a little bit harder to see that, but that's when the nation was redeemed and ransomed, uh, and all of that is in type. And you only know that because you have the New Testament, I think, that you're going to clearly see that. What's another Old Testament example? I, um, I don't know how I found it. In my study, one way or another, I found it. I, I might have been when I was just kind of comparing scriptures with Scripture, going back and forth, or it might have been when I was reading a commentary. But I read in the Old Testament law about a man who had an ox that had horns, and if he knew that that ox had a tendency to be violent and to push with his horns, meaning like if he was known to hurt people and poke people with their horns, that he was supposed to keep that animal under control and like caged up. But if he didn't and that thing pushed and like bored another man or gored him with his horn then, uh, and then killed that man, then that man was responsible and there was the death penalty. And so that was a Mosaic law. But if he had enough money, he could redeem his life by paying money to be set free from 
the death penalty. And so he could redeem his own life. That's a good example of redemption. And that's what the Lord did to redeem us from the power of the grave and redeem us from our sins is he, he paid the price, and he did that on Calvary, obviously. The ransom, he says, I will ransom them. What does the word ransom mean? We talked about that a little bit last time. So the, to redeem means to buy something back or to repurchase. Ransom is the price that's paid. That's the price that's paid. So in New Testament theology, it's the payment required to obtain a pardon for sins or the price paid for the redemption of sinners from death. Um, so Christ on the cross, he purchases God's favor for us by his death and sufferings. That's why we can go to God in prayer. That's why we can come boldly. He purchased God's favor. God will accept us based upon that payment, that ransom. Now, in the New Testament times, when Paul was preaching and teaching, there were rich, wealthy men who would go to the slave market and buy several slaves at one time. Okay, And they would buy them and they would pay their ransom to free them from that slave owner or that, you know, and then they would own those slaves, right? And then if a slave had enough money, they could pay and buy their freedom. But while they belonged to a slave owner, to a master, um, that means that uh, they belonged to him and they had to do what he said, right? You had to get up when your slave master told you to get up, you eat what you're told to eat, you sleep where you're told to sleep, and you do the work that you're supposed to do. You don't have, like, your own choice, um, and it's similar, there's a similar thing to us belonging to the Lord. When Paul wrote his letter to the saints in Rome, when he wrote to the saints in Rome, four out of, this is what they say, and this is what I read, four out of five men in Rome, four out of five men were slaves. That's hard to believe, isn't it? And the way that they describe it is that it was like, employment. Today you have an employer-employee relationship. Back then you sold yourself to somebody and you basically gave them your life in order for making a living, but you belong to them. So when Paul said a servant of Jesus Christ, he called himself a servant, he would have definitely identified with everybody that was in that church because most of the people in that church would be slaves. And so um, and when he said, I'm a servant, that teaches, and I'm kind of just bouncing off of this, the idea, when we say we're ransomed, when we say we're redeemed, we're saying somebody purchased us. So therefore, Paul would say things like, what, know ye not that you're not your own? And all of those men sitting in church would be like, mm-hmm, I know what he's talking about. I'm not my own. I belong to my master. One would say, yeah, I got a good master. He takes care of me pretty good. I think, you know, I think, he, I think he knows the Lord, and he don't talk to me a whole lot about it. I think that he's a Christian, though. And the other one would say, not my master, not my master. There was words I used to have for him before I got saved, you know, and he's not a nice man, but uh, at least he's fair and I'm taken care of and that kind of thing. And they had people who owned them. They understood what Paul was saying. And he would say that you are bought by the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're not your own. You're bought with a price. What is the price? You're bought with a price, his precious blood. And so he says, you now belong to the Lord, therefore your life is not your own. You don't say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. You say, Lord willing. If the Lord's willing, I'll do this or that. And then you just pray and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? 
just like Paul did. And that's how we should be, folks. We should say, Lord, what do you want me to do? What will thou have me to do? Do you want me to go to this church? Do you want me to continue to serve here? Or do you want me to go to another church? And if he hasn't told you to go to another church, you don't go to another church. You stay where the Lord wants you. That's the same thing that I do. Lord, what do you want me to do? Until you want me to move on, I'm going to stay comfortable and content and uh, serve you here in Racine until you tell me to go somewhere else. Um, it's torture to live any other way, really. And it frees me from the responsibility of having to try to um, run my own life. I don't run my own life. If, if I really follow the biblical principle that I'm ransomed by the Lord and redeemed, um, I belong to Him. Therefore, Lord, what do you want me to do today? I know you want me to pray because you told me to pray. I know you want me to meditate on your word. I know you want me to witness. So just when I read that, that's what I think about. Ransom from the power of the grave, I will redeem them from death. And that's what he bought us from. He, he bought us so that we're set free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And we are free not to do whatever we want to do, but free to uh, live for him and to glorify him. And so uh, as Paul said that to the churches in Rome, and as we read it today, that's the idea that we ought to have, that we're bought with a price to the precious blood of Christ. So let's glorify him and serve him well. So we talked a lot about that being ransomed from the grave last time and saying that that refers to the resurrection and the first resurrection is in three parts. I'm going to get off of that subject until the end of our study. Then I'll, I'll come back and hit it again, okay? And Paul said, Paul took this, verse, 5, verse 14, and he used it in reference to the church in 1 Corinthians 15. But it applied, first of all, to the Jews, and still does. It just hasn't been fulfilled yet. It will be fulfilled at the end of the tribulation. But Paul took it and applied it to the church. And the reason why he could do that is because the first resurrection has three parts. And the church is part of that. But the third part is where it applies here to the Jews, the post-tribulation resurrection of the Jews, of Jewish tribulation saints. That's the reason why Paul could apply it to the church as well. So you see, this Bible is written in such a way that if you just come to this thing, and if you're not very, very careful when you study it, that's the time when you should be careful, uh, very careful when you study it to compare Scripture with Scripture and to understand the context. If you're not careful to do that, you'll, you'll start believing the folks that say that God's all done with the Jews and all of this applies to the church. The whole Bible applies to the church. That's nonsense. It does not all apply to the church. So, verse 14 applies to us, the pre-tribulation rapture, and it applies uh, more directly to the Jewish post-tribulation rapture. Verse 15, though he be faithful among his brethren, that's talking, or excuse me, fruitful, that's talking about old Ephraim. Though he be fruitful among his brethren, the Lord is using divine sarcasm. You say, is the God of the Bible sarcastic? Yes, he is from time to time, but it's sanctified sarcasm. You know why he said, though he be fruitful? Because Ephraim, the name Ephraim means fruitful. And the Lord was saying, though he be fruitful, they thought, again, as they looked around, everything was going good, man. New Year's Eve was going to be the biggest party ever. You know, when they dropped the ball in downtown Samaria, you know, uh, we're, we're living high on the hog, you know. 
uh, we're doing good. Things are great as far as the outside goes. They're wealthy, but they're wicked as can be. So they thought, man, we're doing good, and we've got these relations uh, with both Assyria and Egypt. They're both going to back us, and so we got both of them in our pocket, so to speak. So they thought it's good, and he says, though they be fruitful or fruitful among the, his brethren, an east wind shall come. Last time we talked about the east wind. Do you remember what the east wind uh, describes for us in the Bible? When you read the east wind, there's four cardinal winds, and each of them means something. So what does the east wind mean when you read it in the Bible? Trouble's coming. It means, think of destruction. So, Ephraim, his name means fruitful. I left my audio on on my phone. His name means fruitful. Ephraim was the second son of Joseph and father of the tribe named after him. And eventually the geographic location of that tribe was named after him as well. And he says an east wind is going to take away Ephraim. These verses that we're going to study predict Assyria's warfare against them, resulting in the devastation that would come by the king of Assyria. So when you read east wind, it says destruction is coming. And that's the way the Lord talks in the Bible. So it's good to get familiar with the way he talks to his prophets. Now, can you think in the Old Testament when an east wind brought destruction? This is why you've got to read your Bible and be familiar with it. Because the more that you read it, the more that you, you say, well, hold on now. I read about an east wind before when I was in Exodus. You know, remember the locusts coming in? They came from the east and blasted uh, the crops. So look at Habakkuk chapter 1. If you want to find Habakkuk, you go to Matthew and you Habakkuk up a few books. All right. One of you got that. You Habakkuk up. Go backwards a few books, and then you'll get to Habakkuk. It's right after Nahum. And Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 9. And uh, you'll find the east wind in the Bible quite a bit. They shall come all for violence. Habakkuk 1, verse 8. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. This is a reference to the coming destruction or devastation that's referring to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, but the Lord used the same picture, the same word picture. Remember the prophets speak in similitudes? Well, they're going to come and sup up. That means they're going to come and eat up the people there like the east wind. Now compare that to Exodus chapter 10. Genesis, Exodus, that one's easy to find. Genesis, Exodus chapter 10. So they're going to come and eat up the people. Yeah. Yeah. During the famine, the, the that's right. That's another reference to that. The eastern wind blasted that. Yep. Right. Yep. And then uh, Exodus chapter ten, 
Verse 12, this is the ninth sign that was given to the nation of Israel. The Lord said unto Moses, Exodus 10, verse 12, Stretch out thine hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up upon the land of Egypt. So imagine him saying, stretch out your hand, and he's, he's bringing the locusts and using Moses to be a visible sign of that. And uh, they're going to come, they're going to eat every herb of the land, even all that the hail hath left. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day, an east wind. And all that night, and when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts came and ate everything up. So back to, uh, to uh, Hosea. So this is, is referring to destruction coming. Now, it's going to be a thorough destruction. And we're going to read about it. It's going to be terrible. Uh, I quoted the verse before from Romans. Behold the goodness and the severity of the Lord. The Lord can be very severe in His judgments. So we'll finish reading that verse there. He says, uh, Though they be fruitful among his brethren, again, their pride is in all their wealth, their military and economic might. An east wind shall come, the wind of the Lord, to make no mistake about who's going to bring it, shall come up from the wilderness, and his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall spoil the treasure of all pleasant vessels." So he's going to come up from the wilderness and he's going to destroy all of their crops. This Assyrian, the, the Assyrian is going to come through and plunder and pillage and worse and destroy their economy, which would have been, again, it would have been in, uh, uh, I forget the word for it, but they were shepherds and they were uh, city people and they had... Uh, farms and things like that as well. So they were going to destroy their livelihood. Now, when he says his spring shall become dry and his fountain shall be dried up, could be speaking of a drought, but is there anything else that comes to mind when you read the Bible? When you, when you read about a fountain? So, I don't know this for sure. I don't know if you have any commentary in here on it or a study Bible if it makes a reference to that. But this is what I think it is. You can just tuck this away. I read in the book of Proverbs because I like to read a proverb a day. And uh, I used to do it and then I got away from it and now I got back to it again. But um, you read in Proverbs about a man's fountains will be dispersed in the streets. And when it's talking about that, it's talking about his children. That God is going to make him, uh, you know, he's going to bless him with a big family, lots of kids. So a fountain, I think, is the Lord saying, I'm going to destroy your, your people, your lineage, your men, especially, because if you can take away the men, you can, they, they won't be strong. Um, verse 16, Samaria shall become desolate, for she hath rebelled against her God. Remember, Samaria is the capital, the northern capital of Israel. She hath rebelled against her God, they shall fall by the sword, their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child shall be ripped up. Now that's literal. That's literal. Samaria is going to be desolate. This is recorded in 2 Kings. This is our last major cross-reference, but come to 2 Kings with me. 
2 Kings, you have 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. You have three books that are pairs in the Old Testament. Kings was written by eyewitnesses, different authors that were eyewitnesses of the events that happened. 1 and 2 Chronicles was written after the fact by historical records, putting historical records together. But these people saw this. So you can imagine somebody being an eyewitness of these events, seeing what we're about ready to read. And this is the actual fulfillment of the Assyrians coming in, taking the ten northern tribes into captivity. I want to just read a good portion of this chapter um, and then make a couple comments before we close. So... This is the word of the Lord on this. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria. So the king of Assyria came and sacked the capital and carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Halal and in Habor by the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. Now we read that. And we just come right over it, you know. But just imagine, I mean, during World War II, we weren't touched. But imagine like if you were in England, you know, they were bombed. Imagine if you're in some of those European countries where the Nazi troops came through there. And just everywhere they went, they just mowed everything down and took people away. And just imagine if that was happening to you, something like that, um, being carried away. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. That's the reason. Now listen. Excuse me. When we read the Bible, we want to like give God uh, the benefit, you know, like uh, excuse God or qualify. That's the word. Qualify what God does. We don't need to qualify what God does. God says the reason why this happened is because they sinned against me. That, that should be, a Bible believer should just read that and then, oh boy, they sinned against God and they got it. And that's it. You know, but you, when I first read the Bible, I'd just read that and be like, man, boy, I'm not going to sin against God or I hope that never happens to America, but I bet it's going to because we sure have sinned against God a whole lot. And I just read that and I say, man, fear of the Lord is better. Than, than uh, you know, not fearing the Lord. That's and then I, and then I'm, that's it. That's my thoughts on it. People read that today and they're like, "Oh, I can't believe that's in there." I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I like the God of the New Testament. Boy, I don't I don't know what's wrong with people when they start thinking like that. But that's just a that's just a brief side note. Everybody, but I, everybody thinks he's a loving God. Yeah, he yes. Yeah, and and he is. It's hard for us to understand because like. He's not a human like us. He's not like us. And, he, and I read that verse the last time where I said that God said to some people, you thought that I was altogether like you, and I'm not. You know, he's God. <laughs> That's different than a human being. Your dad's a loving person to you. Yeah. You're messed up. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Right. And, and think about the Canaanites that were in the land before Israel came in. Why was Israel there? Israel was there because the time for judgment had come for the Canaanites. He, God was patient for a long time, but they kept filling up the cup of God's judgment and filling it up to it was overflowing, and then God says, I'm judging you. So anyways, let me read on. Um, 
the Word of God is just the best commentary on itself, but which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. God said, I did that. From under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. So they started to reverence and, and worship other gods and walked in the statutes of the heathen, whom the Lord, i got to not try to preach on this, cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. You know what's happening to people in churches? I'm talking about people who are actually, they're not churchless. They actually go to church, you know, all around America. You know what they're doing? They're walking after the ways of the heathen. They're not obeying this book. Judgment first begins at the house of God, right? So the kings of Israel, which they had made, and the children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God, and they built them high places in all their cities from the tower of the watchmen to the fenced city. They set them up images and groves and every high hill and under every green tree. And the Lord's just watching all this happen. And there they burnt incense in all the high places, as did the heathen whom the Lord carried away before them and wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger, for they served idols, whereof the Lord had said unto them, Ye shall not do this thing. Now remember, this is a person who would have been an eyewitness of all these things. And he's saying, this is why it happened. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets, by all the seers, saying, Turn ye from your evil ways, and keep my commandments and my statutes, and I won't bring judgment. Turn. Turn or burn. According to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. You see, he sends prophets to preach a negative message. And that should be the job of a uh, prophet today in the sense of a New Testament uh, prophet. He should be preaching a negative message, warning people to turn. There needs to be some men like that. And if you know men like that, if there's some preachers who have that kind of a ministry, um, it's a good thing. Not all men do, but some do. Uh, notwithstanding, they would not hear, but hardened their necks like to the neck of their fathers. They did not believe in the Lord their God. Right there is the big problem. Failure to believe in Him. And they rejected His statutes and His covenants that He made with their fathers and His testimonies which He testified against them. They followed vanity and became, became vain and went after the heathen that were round about them. And all that stuff, left all the commandments. Let's go down to verse 17. And they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire and use divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord. So let's talk about Molech and burning their children as an offering. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of His sight. So God got angry. So what happened? If you were to explain this in, in childlike terms, which is how the Lord wants us to be, you would say... They did some bad stuff that God said, don't do. And God got angry, and God destroyed them and took them out of the land. That's what happened. Just say it like that. That's what happened. America's done a lot of bad stuff. America is filled with a bunch of bad people, and they make God angry. God is angry with the wicked every day. And God is going to bring judgment on this country, and God is going to take the people out of this land and remove their blessings. It's going to happen. It will happen. It must happen because we serve the God of the Bible and we are all under Him as His creatures. He has created everyone. So 
The Lord rejected all the seed of Israel, verse 20, and afflicted them and delivered them into the hand of the spoilers. Now let's go down to uh, verse 23. Until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets, so was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. Now, that's Samaria being desolate. Let's finish off chapter 13 in Hosea, and, and uh, we'll have to stop there for the night. Um, when, I, when I start reading the Bible, there's a fire in my bones, and I want to preach it and teach it. And I do it in a way that when you meet in a public meeting like this, a public gathering, I'm not thinking of anybody individually in my mind in this community or in this church not thinking of anybody individually but I'm preaching it in a way that it's preaching from my spirit to yours and the Holy Spirit uses it to apply it wherever he wants and um, and so when I do it it's different you know than the way I might talk to somebody in one-on-one in a, in a non you know public setting you all came here of your own free will nobody made you come here and you came here of your own free will to hear the word of God. And when I, when I preach, I'm supposed to preach as one who has authority, right? But at the same time, you understand, uh, like, um, I would never stand up in my mom's kitchen, for example. I always think of my mom. I love her. I have the most respect for her. But I would never stand up in my mom's kitchen and just tell my mom and my, my stepdad, Dave, listen, you know, I would never do that. But this is a different kind of a setting. And sometimes when I do, I think that you guys might be thinking, who does he think he is? But, uh, you know, um, it's, it's uh, well, let's just go on. So, several 9th century B.C. Assyrian uh, accounts that they have uh, from records of history of conquests that the Assyrians have done. Listen, this is what they tell us that Assyrians do or, or did when they were on their conquests. They would burn the young boys and the young girls. They would burn them in front of their parents. And pregnant women would be ripped open. They have accounts of this in uh, written records. The practice was mentioned very rarely, but nevertheless, ripping women open is mentioned. And it's a practice that was attributed to the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser, or Pileser, however you pronounce it, the first, he lived uh, from 1,115 to 1,077 B.C., and they wrote a hymn to praise him. Uh, He was worshipped, evidently. They wrote a hymn to praise him for his conquests, and in that hymn, they they praised him for ripping women open in his uh, vicious, uh, brutal means of handling people that he would conquer. So, As we finish that up, verse 16, Samaria shall be desolate, for she hath rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces. Their women with child shall be ripped up. That's what Assyria was going to do. Um, Again, we don't try to qualify it. This is the word of the Lord, and God's judgments are terrible. And uh, just like the east wind blasting a people locust, leaving nothing behind, these kind of things. Um, our, we serve a God who made hell, who made hell, but he made it for the angel, uh, for the devil and his angels. He didn't make it for men, and, the, and if anybody goes to hell, it's because they want to go there, and God would just say, 
I didn't want you to go to hell. I sent you gospel preachers. I preached to you and I told you to turn. But when you go to hell, you're worthy of it. And um, this is the goodness and the severity of God. So as we think about our own nation, no nation can live like ours has been living since the 50s and the 60s. So for more than 70 years, can live, well, for roughly 70 years, without incurring God's judgment. So it's simply going to come, but what will hold it back? Um, God's people, God's people repenting. But when you have 6%, only 6% of Americans, even if that's even close to being right, that still believe God's book, the other people are calling God a liar, basically. We're in trouble, so we better buckle up. Buckle up, America, that's what I, that's what I think. All right, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, as we bow in prayer... I'm so thankful, Lord, that I'm on the winning side. And God, I'm thankful that it's hard for me to understand it, but uh, there's a side to you that is severe in your judgments. There's a side to you that you are are thorough and and you hand out the exact punishment that, that we deserve. And Father, I'm so thankful that my Lord Jesus took that punishment for me. He took all the hell that I deserve on the cross. And that, Lord, um, that I don't have to die for my sins, and I don't have to die in my sins. And I I deserve it. The longer I live, Lord, the more I realize I, I deserve it. And I was a rebel against you, and I thank you for loving the ungodly, loving people uh, who are just rebels against you. And Lord, at the same time, I know that I live in America, and when it's time for America to receive her judgment, that I might be living here uh, when it starts. And Lord, um, I know that it's just, and I know that it's right, but I can't totally understand things the way that you do. And um, Lord, I'm not as holy, I'm not holy like you are. And so Father, but we would say that, that if judgment comes, you're right, you're just. And so, Lord, I pray for your people in America. I pray for myself. I pray, Father, for a real, genuine revival and awakening and that we get busy with the gospel, that we get serving you. And I know, Lord, it's really it's the worst is yet to come and looking at the tribulation coming up. And this book has been a good study and a good reminder for us to to know that, to know the reality of it, that it's not just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Um, But, Father, I pray that uh, I know we're going to get out of here before things get real bad. But I pray in the meantime, Lord, that you'd use our church, use the Christians in this area, stir them up to love.